Well, good morning. If you're able, you can open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. And when you found it, please stand up. I'm just going to read the last section, verses 16 to 20, which to many of us is familiarly entitled The Great Commission. It doesn't take a super sleuth to understand the desire of why we're preaching this, but it's a great reminder for us to remember the Great Commission to which the risen Christ has called his people, his church, unto. And sometimes we become forgetful. And as Peter says, it's good to be stirred up by way of reminder. Hear now the word of God. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you all the days, even unto the end or completion of the age. Let's pray. Father, we would just ask this morning, as your word is read and preached and taught, that you would be the one instructing us. And Father, I pray that we would see the beauty and worth of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, as we even were reminded this morning as we are praying for the nations that this is the king you have installed at your right hand. You have given him the nations, that you are rewarding his obedience by giving him the ends of the earth as his inheritance. And Father, I pray that we would so love Christ, that we would spend and be spent as he has called us now into this great mission, in the great commission. And we would say, worthy is the Lamb, that, that the kingdoms of this world have become Christ's, and that we would use our time and our talents and our treasures unto this great and noble and eternal end. Lord, would you even convict us? Would you show us, Lord, perhaps that we are living for the wrong things, that we have forgotten the great end of all things. Would you help us to lay up our treasures in heaven? And Father, I pray uh, that you would equip us as a church to make disciples of all nations. Yes, beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, but also to the ends of the earth. Would you remind us, Lord, of this glorious calling to which you've called us, we ask. For Jesus' sake and in his great name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it has been said that the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of missions. And the nearer we get to Him, the more intensely missionary we must become. This is the Spirit of Christ. And it perhaps might be a barometer for us to check now and then as do we care about missions or have we become complacent? And just doing church life, 
Now, we're going to see that missions is more than just sending missionaries, but it's not less than that. And so I just want us to think through a couple of things as we look at this all-too-familiar passage. I want us to understand what Christ has called us unto and the promises that he has given us to carry out this great commission. I want us to notice this morning the great commission as it's given to us here at the end of Matthew's Gospel And I want us to take note of five things from the text, which I trust will be easily understood with our minds, and I pray, by God's goodness, will be carefully applied to our lives. I don't want us just to leave here saying, oh, those those were some good points. They even were alliterated. And then just continue on, as it were, in indifference or worse, disobedience. The last three points are the ones I want us to take away with, but the first two points will sort of lay some groundwork and provide us with some rich theology. Now, you're thinking, theology, time to tune out? Absolutely not. The theology is the meat and the marrow which will fuel the points that I want us to consider at the end of the sermon. So let's get into it. Let's consider first the context. Verse 16 begins with the word but, or now. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. There's two things I quickly want to just pick up and point out to you. For Matthew, this is all too important for us to just quickly skim over and get to the Great Commission. They're sent to Galilee. This is very important for Matthew. He's been working throughout this theology that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. Were you to go to the very beginning of Matthew. It's a very Jewish gospel. And nothing can be more Jewish than reaching the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the book of new beginnings. It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. It's very important that God has always, from eternity past, even in creation, had a plan to reach the world with his glory through an obedient son. Adam failed. Noah failed. Abraham failed. Even King David failed. And what Matthew wants to show us at the very beginning and at the very end, it's called an inclusio, that God has a purpose to give his son the nations in fulfillment to his covenant promises to men like Adam and Noah and Abraham and David. And so you're saying, where do you see that in Galilee? I see it all throughout Matthew's gospel. Go to chapter 4. Because a lot of people are saying here that with Jesus' resurrection, the plan changes. That Jesus was sent first to the people of Israel. Yes! But the people of Israel had always, in the Old Testament, into the New and fulfilled in Christ, always been a means by which God would reach the nations. This is the great fulfillment that we've already read in Isaiah. But we see here in verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew where? I sure hope you're following with your your Bibles. Please don't just listen passively. Please bring your Bibles and make sure whatever Cliff is saying or Nathan or Charles or myself, that it's in there. I've taken time and even alliterated a point to show you the importance of Galilee. This is the context. Jesus withdrew where? Not to Jerusalem. 
Why are you thinking, where's Galilee? Well, maybe you've got a map at the end of your Bible, but we're going to see precisely where it is. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Nebulun and Naphtali. Why? Because this has always been God's purpose. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Not only in the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, but now in his heavenly ministry. As he mediates the spirit to the church. God's ministry through Christ has always been to reach the nations. Galilee reminds us that God loves the world. The land of Nebulun, verse 15, and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. This is what the Jewish leadership and the unbelieving Jews of Jesus' day did not get. They thought that God only loved the, as it were, natural offspring of Abraham, but God is able to raise up seed from Abraham even from the stones. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. I'm going to quickly move on. But Jesus is the light to the nations. In the very next chapter, Jesus on a mountain is teaching the new Israel. You are the light of the world. So put that together with the Great Commission. Jesus is the light who is sent to the Gentiles from Galilee. It's exactly what he's doing in Matthew 28. Through the church in Christ, we are now a light to the nation sent from Galilee. Jesus' ministry begins there and it continues from there through the church to the end of the earth until the end of the world. The people in darkness have seen a great light. In the person of Christ, as he is the king on earth, and now the people to the ends of the earth see a great light through the ministry of Christ from heaven, through the church. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand or has drawn near. Remember that, because we're going to see in later points, this is the same commission. We are to go to the ends of the earth, shining as the lights of the world in Christ, preaching, repent. For the kingdom of God has drawn near. Actually, it's drawn more near now for us than when we first believed. For in Matthew 4, Jesus has not yet been crucified or resurrected. He's not yet ascended to the Father's right hand. He has not yet poured out the Spirit. We can say this, and this is part of our mission, not just being nice people, smiling to the ends of the earth, but going forth with the authority of Christ, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God has drawn near. That's the first thing I want us to consider from the context. The second thing is that it's not only in Galilee, it's from a mountain. It's from a mountain. And mountains are important to Matthew because math, mountains are important to God. Mountains are important to God. In the Bible, and especially in Matthew's gospel, mountains are places of revelation and communion and of covenant giving between God and his people. So I don't want to spend a lot of time, but Jesus is seen here not only as the greater Abraham, as the fulfillment of the Davidic king, he's also seen here as the greater and truer Moses. See, in the Old Testament, God met with his people in the Old Testament at another mountain where he gave them another law. Do you guys see where I'm going with this? 
that Moses is the covenant mediator between God and his people. And God has redeemed his people. And he brings them after redemption to a mountain. And he gives them a law of how they are to be a light to the nations. They're a kingdom of priests as they live and proclaim this law to the Gentiles. Israel failed, but Jesus does not. And the church will not. So we have a mountain in Matthew 28. Look at the very beginning of Matthew 5. Mountains are important. Here is Jesus as the truer and greater, the, as it were, fulfillment of Moses, going up to a mountain and he's speaking to the new Israel. Seeing the crowds, it says, he went up on the mountain, exact same Greek as Matthew 28, 16. And when he sat down, now where is Jesus? He's not in Jerusalem. We read about him in Galilee in Matthew 4. And here he is now in Matthew 5 on the mountain, opening up his mouth to the new Israel and giving them commands on how they should live. He's teaching them. Meaning what? This is what we are to go out and teach to the nations. Jesus is teaching his disciples here. He's commissioned them, and now he sends them with what he's taught them. And if you're wondering what we are to go to the nations with, with the message of repentance, but also the teaching of the kingdom. And I would encourage you to read the Sermon on the Mount. That's a great place to start if you want to make disciples of the nations after you have commanded them to repent. So what? Galilee and the mountains are important because God loves the world. He's concerned about the nations, so much so that Christ comes into the world, he dies, he is raised, and now he commissions his people from Galilee as the greater Moses on the mountain. Go and bless the nations. Show them and teach them what it looks like to live in God's kingdom. So that's the context I want us to be mindful of. Second point, a contrast I want to show you as well. Back to Matthew 28. In verse 16, my ASV reads, now you could translate that but. It's an adversative conjunction. I know that's fancy talk, but it's important talk. The text right before shows that we have people who are trying to suppress Christ's resurrection and the good news that flows from it. They're speaking lies and living in deceit. Here is old Israel. Please don't take this as anti-Semitic, by the way. I'm just saying this is what the text says. Here's the leadership. They will not believe in Jesus. Rather than proclaiming to the nations our Messiah has come, that he has conquered, he has risen, they try to live in deceit, and we see it in the book of Isaiah. It's kind of ironic that Cliff read Isaiah 29 this morning. But this is the contrast, and I simply highlight it to show you nothing will stop the kingdom because all authority is given to Jesus. The Pharisees and Sadducees, along with the Roman authorities, they will not shut up or stop the kingdom. That's the contrast. You can read it after, but they're trying to say this is a big lie. We don't want this to spread. Notice how it says that. They're trying to do this, and this Logos story has been spread. Well, we have another Logos that God will ensure spreads, and it's not the deceit of what the Jews are teaching, it's the truth as it is in Jesus as we proclaim his kingdom. So that's the contrast between the unbelieving, disobedient Jewish leadership contrasted with the believing, 
obedient apostles in Galilee. And I would just ask you, to whom do you belong? Are you part of the disbelieving, disobedient people who want nothing to do with King Jesus' message or kingdom? Or would you say, yes, I identify. It's an important word in 2023. I identify with the believing, obedient apostles who not only believe the gospel, but now go out and preach it. That's the contrast. There's only one of two people. Jesus says earlier, you're either for me or against me. We have those who are against Jesus and his kingdom mission and those who are for Jesus and his kingdom message. And those we are going to see who are for his kingdom mission and message are obedient and talking about it and teaching about it. So this is the contrast. We've seen the context. Here's the contrast. Let's get now to the three points I want us to leave with. First, a claim that Jesus makes. Here they are now. After Jesus has been bodily resurrected, this is probably dovetailing with Acts 1 where Jesus is teaching his disciples about the kingdom before he ascends to the Father's right hand. He's teaching them how to teach. And here he's giving them a command. But before he gives them the command or the commission, he makes a claim. And this is a claim we must never forget. Because if you forget what Jesus says here, you will fear the face of man. You will compromise the message. You will begin to say, I, I need to help Jesus here. It's up to me. Uh, there's something I got to do. I, I need more uh, intelligence. I need more cleverness of speech. No, no, no. You need to simply be mindful that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to King Jesus. And so you should and must go. Jesus comes to them, and he says to them, not some, not most, but all. Okay? Go in your Bible and notice all the alls. All authority over all nations until all the days are fulfilled. As one commentator I read noted, only God can make this claim. Here is now the resurrected Son of God, Son of Man, Son of David. And God has given him all authority. The Father has bestowed all authority to King Jesus. Some people think that in his resurrection, Jesus somehow acquires a new authority. And I would push back against that. This Greek word, exousia, it's all throughout Matthew's gospel, overtly and implicitly emphasized. When he teaches in Matthew 5 through 7, the people are astounded and they say, what authority, same Greek word, what exousia he has. He has authority also to heal the sick, cast out demons. Elsewhere in John, he has authority to lay his life down. He has authority to take it up. Jesus has authority to send out the disciples in Matthew 10. He has authority in Matthew 11 to reveal to the elect who the Father truly is. Jesus, as God, has all authority. So what does it mean here that all authority has been given to him? This was helpful to me, and I hope, I hope it will be helpful to you. 
is that Jesus' authority in his earthly ministry was relegated to a small property called Palestine. He has authority everywhere, but he only exercised it in his earthly ministry in a small piece of land, which we will call Israel. What has happened now that the Son of God has been raised in power, Romans 4, is that this, this authority which he exercised over Israel, is now exercised to the ends of the nations. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament, where at the Tower of Babel, the people thought they would make a great name for themselves, and God confounded them, and he dispersed them. But not only did he disperse the unbelieving nations, he gave them over to gods, small g, plural. And those gods ruled maliciously over them, Psalm 82. And what Jesus does is he exercises the authority over Israel. It says that Jeshurun, that Israel, was God's own special possession. In the Old Testament, Israel was the people of God and Yahweh was the God of Israel. And so here is Jesus, the God of Israel, exercising his authority as God over Israel. But through his death and resurrection... That now spreads to the ends of the earth. He's undoing and reversing Babel. It says in Colossians 2 that Jesus put all of those demonic rulers to open shame. The authorities, the exousias. I know this is heavy theology, but you need to understand where I'm coming from. That before Christ came and died and rose, the nations were in darkness. Why is the gospel not going out in the Old Testament? Why does it seem to be just relegated to Israel? Because part of God's eternal electing plan was that Christ would come and die. And that in his death and resurrection, he would destroy the power of Satan that blinds the nations. The nations are no longer, as it were, bound or blinded. But now the gospel goes forward to the nations because Christ is risen. And he does so through the church. See, this is the unfolding plan of God, Ephesians 3. They've reached their culmination in Christ, and now through the church, God is showing his love fully to the nations. Jesus always had authority. But now that he's raised, he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he has authority now to make disciples through his church. And this authority is bestowed to his bride. So you don't have to go in your own authority. You don't, someone's going to say, what right do you have to tell me I have to repent? What right do we have to go to Muslim nations and say that Allah is a false demonic idol God? What right do we have to go to India and say Jesus is the way, the truth, and life? What right do we have? We have all right. We have all right because we're obedient. In our prayer this morning, our brother quoted Psalm 2. Glorious language that totally fits into this. Ask of me, son, and I will give what as your inheritance? The nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. When does the son get these things in Psalm 2? When he ascends to the father's right hand. It's an installment hymn. Jesus rises, and the father says, all authority is your son. The ends of the earth are yours. And he employs his bride, the church, to gather the nations which are rightfully his. Jesus is Lord over heaven and earth. Never forget that. He has conquered and is conquering. So that's why we go and 
make disciples. This is an astonishing claim. Not some authority, not all authority to some places, all authority over all of his cosmos. This is the glory of the king. This is what was promised to the Son of Man in Daniel 7. You need to know this passage. I'm not going to have you turn there. I am going to turn there and read it. In night visions, Daniel says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and it was presented before him. This is a coronation picture. Here is the son being crowned. And to him and to this son of man, who Matthew has shown us to be Christ, especially through his death and resurrection, and to him, to the son of man, exact same Greek, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Not a kingdom over Israel. A kingdom over all the earth. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Or as Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. I am that son of man, and I am reclaiming my inheritance. I am reclaiming my bride. I'm sending my church out for my dominion. So what? Glory in Christ. Upon his perfect obedience, the Father promised the Son a kingdom. In his resurrection and through his church, Christ has every right over this creation. It's his. I know that I was studying way too many books on exousia. This idea is one of right and might. He has all power as God, but he has all right as sovereign king. And so we go forth with that in the back of our mind. The nations that do not worship God, Christ has claim over them. He has authority over them. He has a right to them. And so we preach the gospel saying, Jesus, gather them in, for they are your right. When others ask you, what right do you have to share the gospel? What right do you have to say things like this? You say something like this, the right I have to do this is because I am in service of the one in whom resides all authority in heaven and on earth. And I tell you to repent and trust in Christ alone because he has commanded me to do so. I don't do so because I feel guilty. I don't do so to earn his favor. I do so because he is worthy. Third point. Third point, fourth point. A command we must always obey. A claim we must always remember. All authority. A command we must always obey. Matthew 28. Notice the grammar again. It's the word therefore. Therefore, because authority is mine, here's the logical conclusion. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. We'll stop there. You'll notice I didn't say commands, but a command. Jesus could have said a whole multitude of things here. But he just gives us one command, which encapsulates all others. Make disciples. In the Greek, there's only one command. Make 
disciples. What does it mean to make a disciple? It means to go out and to tell others about Jesus, to command them to repent and submit to his authority, and then to teach them that they can teach others. It's it's not rocket science. You make disciples by telling and teaching. Tell others who Christ is and what he has done. And those who repent and believe in the Son of Man, in the Son of God, they become disciples through belief and baptism. And then they show forth it through obedience. And then you teach them so they can then tell others and teach others. This is the mission of the church. It's very simple. I hope we never complicate things. That everything should be subservient to this. Sunday school, discipleship. Music, discipleship. Evangelism, discipleship. Men's breakfast yesterday, discipleship. I love getting together with a bunch of bearded guys eating hot sauce on eggs and eating awesome food. But that's to serve discipleship. Preaching. This is not to entertain you. This is part of the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. That you are being equipped and fed to go out and to serve and to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a command we must always obey. Make disciples of all nations. Why? Because Christ has come into the world and shed his blood to save for himself a people from every nation and tongue and tribe and kingdom. However, this command, make disciples, there's, four, there's three what you would call participles. Those are the ing verbs. So you would translate it literally, going, make disciples, baptizing, teaching. See, going, baptizing, teaching. And I just quickly want to look at that. Some people love to say that we focus on the going, so as you go, Make disciples, and I'm fine with that. But you still have to go. In your going, make disciples. As you go to work, make disciples. Tell others about Jesus. Gossip the gospel. As you have family devotions, make disciples. Now, I, I want to I sort of nuance this. He doesn't just say make converts. He doesn't say make decisions. He says make disciples. Discipleship is a lifelong endeavor. So after someone is converted, discipleship doesn't end. It's just the beginning of their discipleship. It's a lifelong endeavor. I'm hopefully still being discipled and discipling. But we go and make disciples first by going. And this is hard. So a man named Graham Goldsworthy, he's a theologian, he says, in the Old Testament, evangelism was by bringing people to Mount Zion. You can read that in Isaiah 2. You can read that in Isaiah 56. So it, it, it was bringing people towards the center. And he says something radic- radical happens with the coming of Jesus and his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension is that he redefines what it means to come to the mountain. And he says, rather now, we go out and bring in. Does that make sense? In the Old Testament, they were to be a light to the nations, and they would attract the nations, and they would come to the temple. Who's the new temple in the New Testament? It's Jesus and the church. 
And so this is why we're planting churches. That when you bring people into churches, you're bringing them, as it were, to Zion. Right? The, the Temple Mount was always where people met with God. Well, people now meet with God in Christ. But Christ is in heaven. And he dwells in his church by the Spirit. So now, as you bring people into the church, you're fulfilling those Old Testament commissions. Come in! But you go out telling them to come, not to Zion, not to Jerusalem. You don't tell them, hey, book a ticket to Jerusalem. Repent and bow your knee to Christ. Be baptized into his name. Join a church and learn and do likewise. So we're going and we're preaching. That's what Jesus did in Matthew 4. That's what we do in Matthew 28. Go, therefore. How do you make disciples? By preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not telling them your experiences. I'm tired of this. Can I tell you what's happened to me? You know what happens when you tell people what's happened to you? I've had an experience. So of Hindus. So of Muslims. So of atheists. Don't tell them about what has happened to you. Tell them what Christ has done. That's the gospel. So you're going. Those who do repent, those who do believe, what are you to do with them? You're to baptize them into the triune name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And quickly, I'll just say this. Into is a wonderful way of saying that whoever is being baptized into that name is showing that they're submitting to the lordship of that name. That's what the Greek is implying. And so when you're being baptized, you're not just getting water dunked on you. You are publicly identifying with the triune God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. You are saying, I have decided to follow Jesus in my obedience even unto death. It's not flippant. It is a holy ordinance baptism. You are identifying with the triune God publicly, but you're also identifying with his people. You are baptizing them, and they're identifying themselves with God and his people. As I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. This time I'll quote Carson. He says that unbaptized Christians are an anomaly to the New Testament mind. There's no secret disciples, not in the book of Acts, not in our day and age. Have you trusted in Christ, young person? Have you repented and believed in him? Then I command you to be baptized into the triune name. I'm not asking you. I'm commanding you as part of your obedience and discipleship. A disciple is one who learns about and follows King Jesus no matter the cost. And I can confidently say that because I believe in something called sovereign grace who can make us willing to publicly identify with this Christ and can make us willing to obey him, even if our friends laugh, even if we have to go to other nations, even if we're martyred. I believe in that kind of sovereign grace. Why? Because Christ has all authority. Going, immersing, teaching. Teaching who? Teaching those who have been made Disciples, teaching them to do what? To observe, to keep NIV, to obey most of what I've commanded. All that I've commanded. What has Jesus commanded? First, to repent. Second, to pick up your cross and follow him. 
He's commanded you to preach the gospel. He's commanded you to live as light. He's commanded you to be salt. Go and just read the Sermon on the Mount. Most commentators say that the teaching to which Matthew here is quoting of Jesus is actually in his book. Did you know Matthew was a catechetical book? Right? Just so you know, if you've got one of these bad boys this morning, you're very different than almost every believer in the first five centuries. They didn't have all these books put together with a nice piece of goat skin or sheep skin or unicorn skin. So, so, so Matthew wrote this, perhaps, to, to a bunch of Jewish Christians. And he's explaining to them what it looks like to come to King Jesus and what it looks like to obey him. And you can read that in the five teaching sections. Now, you guys are, are well-versed in the Bible. Where else in the Bible... Does a mediator give a people five teaching sections? It's the Pentateuch given by Moses. God in his love not only saves his people, he then gives them, as it were, an instruction manual on how to live. He gives them the Pentateuch. And then the prophets, they look back to the Pentateuch and they rebuke them. You're not living as kingdom citizens. Well, Jesus as the new Moses gives the new people of God, those who believe, new teaching that fulfills. It doesn't eradicate. It doesn't dispense of the old, Matthew 5, 17. Not one jot, not one tittle, but this new Moses gives the new Israel, this new teaching, what it's supposed to always look like. I feel like I'm down south. (laughs) Teaching them. So yesterday at the men's breakfast, it was wonderful, singing manly songs with manly men, eating manly food, talking about manly things like hot sauce. But what we focused on, what Cliff had us focus on was family devotions. Men, this is discipleship. Go and disciple all nations, but start in your own home. Disciple your wife. I need to be better at this. Disciple your kids. I need to be better at this. But this is why we keep preaching the full counsel of God. Well, I'm single. That's okay. Go and disciple others. But if you have a wife and children, disciple them. And then disciple your neighbor. And then disciple your co-workers. Then go disciple those who you see in your goings about. But please see that everything is subservient to making disciples, which is why it sounds legalistic, but we really, really stress family devotions. That's discipleship. That's discipleship. What is the command? The church must always obey. Make disciples of all nations. How? Going, baptizing, teaching. Going to all peoples, teaching them all things. Because Christ is always with us. And that's our last point. A comfort we must always cherish. So there's a wonderful sandwich happening. Getting towards the end of the sermon, so there are abundance of food analogies. But here's the sandwich. The command is, as it were, the meat. But it's, sometimes you go to McDonald's and just the bun's really stinky. You don't like the outer buns. don't like the, the Big Mac. But these buns are wonderful. The meat is the command, but Jesus, he, he has one bun that says, all authority is mine. And then the other bun says, I'm with you always. These are motivations that are meant to encourage us and to spur us on. 
The one who is always with us has all authority. The one who has all authority is always with us. I know that was a profound way of saying it. But this is something that is meant to comfort us. And so cherish it. This is a major theme in Matthew's gospel. When the the Son of God is born into this world, not only is his name Jesus, the one who saves people from their sins, but quoting Isaiah 7, you shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. And so here's Jesus on earth, walking with his people. God with us. God in the flesh with us. In the very middle of Matthew's gospel, chapter 18, talking now to the church, he says, when two or three agree with, with one another, in my name, there I am with you. And at the very end, beginning, middle, end, as Jesus is setting up the kingdom of God, he's reminding his people who go in his name, Emmanuel. I wasn't just with my people when I walked on earth. I wasn't just at, with my people in the church when it began. I'm with my people right now through the Spirit. Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the completion of the age. I like that translation better. Not just the end of the age, the completion of it. That Jesus has a terminal end, and things will be completed. When the last of the elect is saved, Matthew 24, 14, when the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, Jesus will return for his bride. And until then, he's not left us as orphans. When you're sharing the gospel and stuttering like a fool, when you feel insecure, that's okay. We prayed for our brothers and sisters to the ends of the earth this morning, focusing on India, Nigeria, and Nicaragua. Jesus is with them. And he has all authority. And even if they die, he does not forsake or leave them. But they overwhelmingly conquer. So... Comfort this promise. Ryle says this, J.C. Ryle. What stronger comfort could believers desire than this? It is impossible to conceive of words more comforting, strengthening, cheering, and sanctifying, and I will add motivating than these. Let all true Christians lay hold on these words and keep them in their hearts and minds. So I've, I've, I've ripped through this pretty quickly. I've tried to show you that that God's purpose from eternity past into time which we now are in and into eternity future has always been to save a people for himself from every tongue and tribe and nation. That's always been God's will. Always. When you ask, what is God's will? It is always to give his son a people for his name. To give his son the inheritance as his nation. That's always God's will. Where should I go to university? I don't know. Who should I marry? I don't know. But I do know this, that it should tie into the son's authority to make disciples. That's his will. And then he gives us a whole bunch of things to help us in this command. He reminds us of his claim. He has all authority. And he gives us a wonderful comfort. He is Emmanuel. He is with us. So what? Or you might say, now what? I would ask you, in light of these things, just do a quick inventory. Is this a priority of yours? And if it isn't, then just humbly ask God to forgive you. He is gracious and merciful. 
right? And say, Lord, would you help me to realign the priorities of my life with the priority of your kingdom? Because we all go astray. I do. As a brother was praying, Matt was praying this morning, when we think about the persecuted church, our oven pooped out again. It's just like, just buy the worst stuff. Who cares? Ovens are great. But it just kind of humbled me and reminded me that if this oven doesn't die a year and a couple months after its warranty, it's going to die sometime. But his kingdom is forever. And so I would just ask you, is this a priority of yours? The second thing I would say is to pray for balance as a church. What do you mean? Well, making disciples is telling and teaching. And some churches, you know, they go all on one extreme. We're just telling everybody about Jesus, telling everybody about Jesus. Amen. But then you need to then teach those disciples. How do you live for Jesus? And then I think the other ditch, and our church is probably a little more prone to this error, is that we're just heavy on teaching. And teaching is glorious. But this teaching is meant to equip you to tell and to teach. It's to be replicated. And so pray that we would be a church that is going, not just learning, but going. Thirdly, I would remind us that this is a command not merely for individuals, though it is, but it is ultimately for the church. Beg says this, this charge is laid upon the whole church. Why? Because Christ gives us a whole gospel for the whole world, which requires the whole church. We, we work together, Ephesians 4. And the Great Commission involves you sharing the gospel, say, with your coworker, And then you bring them into the community. And then they see the Spirit at work and the reign of Christ as people are praising him. I, I want to say something. Some people poo-poo inviting people to church as though that's a cop-out. It's not. Such people are not reading their Bibles. Now, if the church is full of, of, of gong-showedness, yes, don't bring them there. But if the Spirit is working in a local church, bring them there. Bring them to your men's study. Bring them to your grace group. Bring them to the ladies' study. Let them see Christ ruling over his people in the power of the Spirit. I want unbelievers invited to this church. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think I am. We need the evangelists in our midst just loving on them. We need those who serve like crazy serving them. So this is a command, yes, for us as individuals as you go to work, but not to be severed from the church. You should always have in your mind's eye as you're reaching your family that they will join a local church, that they will be baptized into Christ's name, and then they will join a church and be taught in that church so that they can then go out. Let me give you something tangible, however. I'm stealing this from Beg, and that's okay. He's a good guy to steal from. He said in his sermon on this, pray that you would share the gospel with three people in the next three months. Now, I'm not giving you this as a burden. Please don't take this as legalism, but it's a good start. Maybe just instead of three, just say one. God, would you help me to share the gospel with one person this year? It's November. We've got two months left. Would you pray that God would give you grace to maybe invite them to church during Christmas? Christmas is a wonderful time for people to hear about Jesus, this Emmanuel with us. So just pray. God, would you give me the courage? Would you show me the worthiness of Christ?
Would you give me grace to fear the Lord and be constrained by the love of Christ that I would go and and plead with people as an ambassador of Christ, be reconciled to God, repent. Jesus will forgive you if you will but believe him. Pray for courage to invite a co-worker to church or to your women's study. Fathers, would you make a commitment or a recommitment to family devotions? And would you pray for the leaders of this church that we would never forget the Great Commission, that even this message would be under and subservient to that mission. So I'll let you do some work with the Lord in prayer, but I would encourage you, say, Lord, convict me that if I'm not sharing the gospel, would you give me the grace to be bold? Why? Because Jesus has all authority, and he gives it to you to make disciples. Last thing. When Jesus says, I am with you, this is what you would call both objective and subjective. He's always with us. Even in your disobedience, he's with you. It's, right? He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. There's not a place in the world where Jesus isn't. But what he's teaching here is that as you go, you experience his presence in ways you would never experience in your disobedience. Do you want more of Christ? Do you want more of his, of his spirit felt? Then be on mission. I, I will promise you this. You will experience and sense Christ in more intimate and near and glorious ways as you are obedient to the Great Commission. I will promise you that. He is with you, but you will sense him in a nearness you would have never experienced if you weren't on mission. So I'll leave you with that. Do you want more of Jesus? I opened it up. The spirit of Jesus is the spirit of mission. And the closer you draw near to Jesus, the more you will be on mission. And the more you are on mission for Christ, the more he will draw near to you, giving you everything you could ever imagine and more. That's enough. Father, I want to thank you for loving us, Gentiles, nations, and sending your son into the world. Thank you, Father, for the faithfulness of men and women who shared the gospel with us, who made us disciples. Thank you, Lord, for the teaching ministries of Grace Community. But, oh, Father, I pray that that we would not just be hoarding this to ourselves, gorging ourselves with more and more and more teaching, but never sharing, never teaching, never going, never telling. Oh, Father, I pray that many would come to know Christ, would follow him as disciples, calling him Lord and Master and Teacher. I I pray, Father, for those who have not yet been baptized, that you would lay it on their heart that they must obey Jesus if they are disciples. Father, then would we teach the nations who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he demands from the world. And as we celebrate the table, Father, I pray that you would give us grace to confess our sins, perhaps even of not being faithful to the Great Commission, but that you would also empower us and remind us that your presence is with us, that you will not forsake us in this mission. And lastly, I pray, Lord, remind us, as I know Cliff has been reminding me so much, that Jesus is worthy. He is worthy of the nations. And so help us to preach his kingdom to the nations, we ask in his name. Amen.